Hello, my name is Anne. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 27, verses 1 through 4. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Emily. <clears throat> the New Testament reading is found in Romans 10, 9 through 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Ruth Valdez, and thank you for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing just for a moment. Heavenly Father, we know and choose to believe that you are right here, right now. So Lord, we fixed our attention on you. We just ask that you would meet us here in this place. Open our eyes to see you and open our ears to hear you and soften our hearts that we might feel and know you right here, right now. It's in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. I always get a better response at the 11 a.m. than I do at the 9 a.m. because everyone's awake and has probably had at least a couple of cups of coffee by this time, I assume. Hey, like Evan said, my name is Pastor Joey Jimenez. Glenn is traveling. He and the Pacquiam clan are up in Keystone vacationing. Uh, They're having a wonderful time. And so I get the privilege of opening the text for us this morning. 
We are in week two of a four-week series that we're doing on a a mini-survey of the book of Psalms and really just highlighting the language of prayer. Um, And so this morning, I want to put a new tool, maybe this is a new tool, but this morning I feel strongly that the Lord wants us to put a new tool into our toolbox concerning prayer. Our text for the morning is going to be Psalm 27. A lot of you know this, but if you want, you can go ahead and turn there with me now. I'm going to dive right in for the sake of time this morning because I'm really excited about what I have to share. If you want to flip with me to Psalm 27, please do that. Otherwise, if you have a phone, you can find it. Psalm 27 is written by a guy named David. And David, as some of you know, was a king over Israel, but he wasn't always the king over Israel. So many wonderful things are said about this man. Maybe the the most forceful, the most powerful said by God himself, and that is this, that God, when he was seeking a replacement for Saul, who was David's predecessor, said, I have found a man, I am raising up a man after my own heart. I am raising up a man after my own heart, and it is he that will lead. David, at the start of David's story of what we find in Scripture, is this. David is given a pretty magnificent promise. And for those of you who are familiar with the story, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you not, I'll give you a quick recap. But David is the youngest of his brothers, a nobody. His predecessor, a guy named Saul, we're told, was head and shoulders above every other man in Israel. He was the obvious choice. He was a standout. David, on the other hand, was the youngest. He was the least of his brothers. He was a shepherd. And the way that the Bible describes him throughout the Old Testament is this, is that he was handsome and ruddy. And I love that description because to me it paints this picture of a guy who had just spent a ton of time out in the fields. He was a shepherd. He tended to his family's sheep. And he probably got incredibly dirty doing it. I think that's why I'm so fond of David. But David was a shepherd. David was a nobody. But David is given a pretty magnificent promise, and that promise is this. He was told that he would become the next king of Israel. And I'd love to tell you that that the story from then on is just easy, that David steps right into his role. He enjoys peace on all sides. His tenure as king is is without opposition, but that's not the truth at all. In fact, David not only receives a magnificent promise, but the course of that promise being fulfilled actually, actually includes tremendous opposition and perhaps no more opposition, no opposition greater than the king that he was replacing Saul, for whom he worshipped, for whom he played music. But it was Saul who multiple, tri- multiple times tried to kill David with a spear because of this promise, because of the anointing that rested on God. And what I love about David is this, is throughout his story, throughout the promise and the opposition, promise and opposition, there's something unique sustaining David that you actually have to plumb to figure out what it is. And I really do believe that the difference, what sets David apart is this, is that David has an incredible capacity to remember. You could say that David was a professional at remembering. David was a professional at remembering both the promise, what God had declared over him, and who it was who had made the promise, God himself. David had history 
with God. And we know that. David's standing. When David comes onto the scene and he's about to step up in a really, really big way, and we know the story. It's David and Goliath. Goliath is there shouting taunts, and nobody's willing or able to step up. And David shows up. He's bringing food for his brothers who are there on the front lines. David shows up. He says, who is this filthy Philistine that he would shout taunts at the Lord our God? Goes to Saul, goes to this king that he would be replacing, and Saul tries to convince him not to. There's no possible way you could do this. But again, David is convinced and compelled by the promise. But who does he give credit to in this moment? It's not, I can do this, I can do this, I believe in myself. What does David say? It's beautiful. He goes back to this place of experience and history with God, and he said, it was the Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion. It was the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the bear. He will make, he will make this Philistine like one of them in my hands. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a second, wait a second, David killed a lion and a bear? It's true. Um, But I love that moment where David, in that place, who does he give credit to? Who does he recognize as the source? David says in that place, the Lord God has. Surely he will again. There's confidence. And then we see the result of David's confidence. Goliath lying on his back, defeated. The thing that separates David is his capacity to remember the promise, who it was who made the promise, and his confidence to live according to that very goodness. I want to say two things right off the bat before we dive into the psalm. And the first is this, that every person who accepts, every, every single soul that begins a relationship with Jesus Christ inherits two things right off the bat. Some of you are thinking, great, tell me. I've been waiting for this one. Every person who begins a relationship with Jesus Christ inherits two things. It's not really anything you can lay hands on, but the first is this. It's you inherit a history with God. And what I mean by that is you can now look back. We begin to look back at the story of our lives and find the places and see those places where God was without us knowing it. We can look back into our story and say, oh my gosh, that was the Lord all the time in that season. Oh my gosh, when I was desperate for somebody to reach out a hand, that was the Lord's hand. When I needed this, it was the Lord who did that. We inherit a history which means when we look back, we can see the Lord's movement throughout our story. And we also inherit, the second thing, we inherit an eternity. And what I mean by that is this, is we can look forward expectantly. We can look forward with anticipation, knowing that our story goes on with God. In fact, God goes before us, and we can experience, we can enjoy, we can delight ourselves in that relationship for an eternity. Now, that doesn't mean later. It means now. It means we get to enjoy that ongoing. And David lives out of that. Anyone who begins a relationship with God inherits both a history and an eternity. And what that means is that when we look back and when we look forward, when we look into our past and when we look toward our future, we do so. You and I, this isn't just David, you and I get to do so through the lens of the knowledge of God's goodness. That's what I want to talk about this morning because what David does with that knowledge is important. That's what sets him apart. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. That word is this. It's a declaration. 
For some of you, that's like, okay, I, that's, that, that is a part of my repertoire. That's an arrow I already have in my quiver. For some of you, you're going, what kind of role does declaration, what kind of role could declaration possibly play in my prayer life? And that's where we're going to go. So if you have your Bible open, let's start with Psalm 27. We're going to read the first few verses. This is one of my absolute favorite psalms. This is David's journal. When we look at the Psalms, this is David exposed, unfiltered. This is just his formal informality with the Lord. He knows to whom he's speaking and to whom he's writing, but at the same time, it's just David's rawness is with speaking with a friend. This is what David says in in Psalm 27. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they, not I, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war raise up against me, yet I will be confident. And then verse 4, which I don't know if is up there. Verse 4 is this. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Some of your Bibles translate that word inquire as meditate, which is actually my preferred one. I love that one a little bit more. I'll tell you why in a second. But really, when I look at all of Psalm 27, I'm convinced, in my opinion, I'm convinced that all of Psalm 27, that all of David's language in this beautiful text is made possible because of David's attitude in verse 4 and then again in verse 8. And what I mean by that is this. In verse 8, let me read that real fast. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. I believe that all of Psalm 27, that David's that the language that we see and hear David saying here, praying here, is because of David's attitude in, in verse 4 and verse 8, and that's this. What I mean by that is this. David is very familiar with life behind the curtain. David is not a foreigner, a foreigner to life in the presence of God. One thing I ask that I may seek to dwell in the courts of the Lord all the days of my life, all the days includes the right now, the present for David, to gaze upon his beauty, to behold him, and to inquire, that word to meditate again, to meditate literally means to mutter, to put our voice to, not just to meditate Eastern thought where we're just sitting trying to empty ourselves, but to meditate here means to mutter that David was literally speaking with and declaring to God. And I believe that all of Psalm 27 is made possible because of that attitude. And that attitude is this. David has developed over the course of his life an appetite like no one else for the presence of God. In Psalm 51, he says, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, because David knows this is the one thing. So when an enemy encamps around him, when David's foes come to assail his flesh, is David praying to be rescued? Is David praying for relief from his circumstances? No. What does David pray for? One thing, the presence of the Lord. Because David's history with God has brought him to this place, and he is confident of that. In fact, he is so confident that it is that confidence, it is David's familiarity with the presence of God that enables David to declare these three words. 
more than that, but we're going to start with three. The Lord is. The Lord is. Interesting that David doesn't say the Lord is a light. It's true. Interesting that David doesn't say the Lord is the light. But what has David said? What does David say, excuse me? It's intensely personal, fiercely personal. David says right here, it's the very thing he opens with. David cries, the Lord is my light. This is a declarative statement. The Lord is my light. Then he goes on, the Lord is my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Friends, these are three of the most powerful words that you could possibly add to your prayer life. And if three is too much, I'll give you two. You can make it even more personal and say, you are, when talking to the Lord. The Lord is, the Lord is, the Lord is. David is able to declare that. And again, this is more than just a good idea. That is why David doesn't say the Lord is a, or the Lord is the. To David, this is the best idea. It has moved from head to heart, and it is affecting every decision that David makes. So he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold. So the point I want to make there is this, is that declaration, declaration reminds us of the truth of God's goodness. God doesn't need the reminder. This is purely for David right here. That in this moment, in this season, when David is writing this psalm, David is declaring this to remind himself of what he has experienced in life behind the curtain with God. Declaration reminds us of the truth of the goodness of God. This is a stake in the ground for David, and as many of you know throughout the Old Testament, when God would do something for the people of Israel, oftentimes he would say, build an altar. And the purpose of building the altar was to remember, not just for them, but God takes it a step further. God says, this is for your children and your children's children. When they ask you about this to Joshua, when they ask you about this, you tell them what happened here. This is their story too. This is a part of their history, even though they weren't here. This is part of their history. And so God says to build an altar, to put a stake in the ground. So when David is declaring right now, The Lord is. The Lord is. He is putting brick on top of brick from what he already knows to be true. And this isn't stuff that David is making up. This is David's experience. This is David's knowledge of the goodness of God. There is nothing stronger than that. And we see that throughout the life of David, trying to convince him that God wasn't good, just couldn't be done. Let's move on. The next passage, I want want to take us down to verse 5. And if you're underlining, underline those three words, the Lord is, and then I want you to underline in verse 5 these three words, for he will. Here's what David says in verse 5. He says, for he will make, excuse me, he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. Doesn't sound like somebody who's questioning what's going to happen, does it? He goes on to say, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon the rock. And then not only is that forecasting right now into the present, but David also says, and now present, the response to that declaration is David saying, and now my head shall be lifted up. Sorry, this isn't up there. Verse six, my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in this tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. 
I love this. The second thing I want to say about declaration is this. That not only when we look back, again, when we look back, we do so through the lens of our knowledge of the goodness of God. Not only does, does looking back help us to remember, but looking back also reinforces. And so what I want to say is that declaration reinforces. Declaration reinforces our faith in times of trial. What I should have said up there is that not only in times of trial, but declaration reinforces our faith in times of trial, yes, but also in times of sweetness and victory. Declaration reinforces their faith. Three times David says he will. And then if you skip down to verse 10, he adds another. For the Lord will take me in. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. David is declaring the goodness of God again. He has reminded himself of it. His experience, where he has been, the ways that he has seen and felt the Lord show up. And he is declaring it into his present Past, present, you know where we're going to go in a moment. The reason David can say, he will conceal me, he will hide me, is because David knows exactly what it feels like to have felt hidden. David knows what it feels like to have been concealed in the presence of God, to be cut off from external circumstances and the chaos that he describes in verses 3, or in verses 5 and 6 and prior to 4, excuse me. David knows, and therefore David can, can declare confidently. Declaration reinforces our faith in times of trial. I do want to say this, though. Oftentimes, in this moment, David is declaring confidently, knowing. But I want to ask the question, because the Psalms are full of these stories, too. How many times did David declare the opposite of what he was feeling? David was a man, David was a human just like us who wrestled with, the, with doubt. And at times, the way that David used declaration was, again, reminding himself because he needed it, not because he was so confident. That resonates with me because my confidence is unlike David's most of the time. And then lastly, as David closes out this psalm, he gives us another one, past, present, and future. Looking back, when we look at our story, when we look at our history, our past, it shapes the way we see, it shapes the way we respond to our present, but it also shapes the way that we see, can see our future. Read verse 13 with me if you're following along. David says this, and you can underline these words, I believe that. At the end of the psalm, David says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe that. Not I hope that. Not it would be great if. But David right here is declaring into his future, I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, he says. Be courage and let your heart Be strong, excuse me, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. What David is doing right here is actually pretty beautiful. David is making, and this is going to scare some of us, I think. David is making a prophetic declaration about his future. I believe that. This has not come to pass. David is saying, I believe that. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. 
It's really quite beautiful. And oftentimes prophecy, this idea of prophetic declaration or the idea of prophecy in general can scare some of us. I want to break this down really in just two ways. That throughout the Old Testament, there are two ways that we look at prophets or prophecy. Prophets were often considered, there were two classes. One, who were seers. And what I mean by that is they were given a picture of what would come to pass. And they would communicate that picture. And there were others who were sayers. And these people, these prophets were given a word from the Lord and instructed to speak that word on the behalf of the Lord to the people of Israel. So seers and sayers. And what David's doing right here is actually pretty beautiful for this reason. When we think about prophetically declaring, David is both seeing and saying into his future. David is seeing. Again, he's familiar with life behind the curtain. David is seeing. He is beholding the goodness of the Lord, both past and present. He is beholding that goodness. He is seeing that goodness, experiencing that goodness. And then David forecasts. David declares that goodness into his future. Why? And how? Why? Because he can. How? Because he knows that God will never not be as good as he is. He will never not be himself. That God will be as good then. And so David looks forward to it. Not only does David look forward to it, but David plays a very active role. Meditating, this picture again, is the least passive word in the Bible. But David puts his voice to it. We have a two-year-old little girl, and we're telling her all the time right now, use your words. Use your big words. Right now, David is using his words. And he is speaking into his future a reality that he can be confident of because of who he is confident in. And that is Jesus. That is the Lord God right here. This is not wishful thinking which I know some of us may be thinking about. Is this just David hoping for a happy ending, for the story to end well? And that's not it at all. But David can say this confidently in the same way that Jesus could go to the cross with confidence because he knows, is familiar with, and can go all in, can double down, can put all of his chips on the table at any moment because of the goodness of God. So what I'd say here is that declaration also releases the goodness of God into our future. Declaration releases the goodness of God into our future. It's participatory. We have a role to play. We get to play a role. The way that David does that is by aligning his belief with what is most true. Who God is and the promise that God has made him. You can take that to the bank any day of the week, friends. Every promise that's made by God is 100% backed by God. Friends, as a lot of you know, before I came on staff at New Life Downtown, my wife Emily and I, uh, we worked for, we ran an adventure camping ministry called RMR Backcountry. And we got to take high school kids and college-age kids, excuse me, up into the mountains for week-long discipleship trips, week-long backpacking trips where literally everything you need for the week is in a pack that sits, that lives on your back during the day. So for seven days and six nights, everything you need, everything you'd want is right there with you. And one of the highlights of these trips 
was when we would get to put this tool and we would get to share the practice, this language of declaration with high school kids who had been and were coming into these weeks so convinced of the enemy's lies being the most true thing about them. And so on the highlight, the midpoint of our week, when we're furthest away from camp and right before we start to make our way back towards the cars, we would do something called peak day. And most of our trips were built around this where we knew on this day we're going to take these kids and we're going to summit one of these mountains. And typically most of the mountains on these routes are anywhere from 13,000 feet to 14,000 feet. And peak day starts. It's not beautiful. I'm not going to lie to you. Peak day starts at 2.30 a.m. Peak day starts in, in the pitch black and it's cold. And these high school kids who are like, yeah, we're just starting to like you are thinking, I really hate you right now, man. But we're trying to get them up and we're trying to rally. Breakfast is a bar and we're hiking by headlamp in the middle of the pitch black. But slowly it starts to get lighter and lighter and kids, I think, are on to what's happening. But we have a surprise. We keep one surprise in our sleeve and that surprise is this. Once we get up to about 12,000 feet, we drop our packs and kids are thinking, praise the Lord. I don't even know him, but I'll praise him right now because this is amazing. And then we look at him again. It's still pretty dark and we say, hey, I want you to do something for the next you know, 1,000 feet or for the next few hundred feet, depending on where we drop packs, I want you to grab a rock that's roughly the size of your hand. And most girls grab a rock that is exactly the size of their hands, and most guys grab a boulder. They're like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm to grab this one. They don't even know what we're doing. They just think it's going to be tough. <laughs> Little do they know. And then we tell them, hey, we're going ne- to hike from here to the top. This is Taylor Peak, or this is McCurdy Peak. We're going to hike from here to the top, and we're going to do so in absolute silence. And kids are thinking, what? And I want you to carry this rock the entire way. What? And then that one kid's thinking, this was a stupid idea. Why did I get this rock? And then we get to the summit, and it's silent, and it's kind of eerie. And oftentimes you can, you can begin to hear tears. You can begin to hear kids wrestling with what they know they're doing. We get to the top of the mountain. We sit down, and it's quiet. We'd, We like to milk this moment a little bit. We don't necessarily let them know what we're going to do. And then we'll circle them up after they've had about 15 or 20 minutes just to sit. And if we timed it right, the sun is just coming up over the continental divide. This is the furthest they've been from their past and the nearest they'll be to their future. And it's there in this moment that the sun begins to rise and they're feeling the warmth of the sun on their face. And then we tell them, circle up. Come over here to the edge. Not too close, mom and dad. Come over here to the edge. This rock that you have been carrying, we've been doing life stories all week long, this rock that you've been carrying is a lot like the lies that you have believed about God and the lies that you have chosen to believe about yourself. So we invite kids to actually put a name to it. What is the lie that you've believed? And then in the place of, at the very end, we say, now we're going to give you an opportunity. And throughout the week, while they've been telling their life stories, they've been hearing truth. Truth about God. They've been hearing truth about them, both from their leaders, from the Bible, as we've sent them out on quiet times and solos. They've been hearing truth from their friends, truth about themselves from their friends. And then we say, great, now you have a war chest. You're not in a deficit of truth about God and truth about you. Now I want you to take this rock. I want you to name the lie. And as you throw this thing as hard as you possibly can off the summit of this mountain, I want you to declare the truth 
in the place of this lie. What's beautiful is, hey, I should preface that whenever we do this, we do this in specific areas where we know there aren't other people. What's beautiful is you can watch the atmosphere change. You can watch years of lies falling off of a kid's shoulder. Falls off of mine every time I'm out there. It's a 33-year-old man. As they declare are declaring truth in the place of a lie. Every kid, the non-athletes become championship pitchers, and they're usually the ones who throw the rock the farthest. But what's beautiful is their countenance changes. You could watch these kids step into this moment and go in in an instant. You're not the same person you were 10 minutes ago. Because they have been so convinced. This good idea that God is fill in the blank that the Lord is. This good idea that he will fill in the blank. Complete the sentence. This good idea that I believe that has become more than just a good idea, and it's moved from their head to their heart. And guess what happens when things take root here? Our life begins to change. So friends, when we think about declaration, I've gotten to connect, I should say this real fast, with a lot of those kids. And to see, some of them are here at New Life Downtown, actually. And to see what happens when they start making their way down the mountain. Because the beauty of the valley, as we know this, is that what we see on the peak defines, shapes the way that we live and what we see in the valley. That's the beauty of declaration. As we begin, we begin to claim, we remind ourselves, we remember, we reinforce, and then we release the reality of what we know to be true about God and what he's saying about us into our future. And it's so fun to watch those kids years down the road. So friends, as we close this morning, here's what I want to do. I gave you three phrases. The Lord is, He will, and I believe that. A life, any life would be well wasted completing, completing those senses, sentences. I don't know why I couldn't say that. Any life would be well wasted completing those sentences and then declaring those over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. There has been declaration. The practice of declaration has become one of the most important tools in my life when I think about how to maintain intimacy with Jesus Christ. And my hope is that it would be for us. So church, let's do this. I want to take just a moment and the worship team can go ahead and make their way up. But I want to take just a moment, and I just want to be still, and I want us to remember, I want us to do that right now. I want you to think about your story. I want you to think about your past. Again, we get to look back. We get to look into our past through the lens of what we know now to be true about God. I want you to look into your past, and I want you to think about who he has been. And I want you to think about, too, what he has done. Have you seen him show up? If you've ever been delivered out of something by the Lord, then guess what? You have a stake in the ground. What has he done? Who do you know him to be? Who do you need a reminder of? In what way do you need to be reminded of that today? Sunday morning, July 26th. And then in what ways, I believe that, in what ways 
do you believe that the Lord will be that good tomorrow, next week, some random Thursday, five years from now? The Lord is. He will. I believe that. Jesus, we just thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you for the many ways, the ways that we know about, the ways that are all too familiar, and the ways that we can now look back and begin to remind ourselves and begin to see the movement, your movement in our story. Thank you for the ways that you have and are showing up in our lives. And Jesus, thank you for the ways that you have in mind to show up. church as we come to the table as we prepare to come to the table worship is a natural response to declaration worship is declarative so I hope that we get to enter into that together out of this place of knowing and being able to declare the goodness of God right here in this place amen